Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Samuel Burke for Monday, June 28th, joined by my colleague Jack Farley and the guest of honor today, Darius Dale, founder and CEO of 42 Macro. The big story we're going to be talking about with Darius is Binance, the biggest cryptocurrency exchange in the world, has been banned by regulators here in the UK. Jack, what else are you following? Well, we've got the Nasdaq surging 1.2%. This as Treasury yields actually fall. So we were having another classic sort of anti-reflation trade. Samuel? Yeah, a big surprise for me seeing United Airlines saying that they're going to be profitable again by July and then seeing their stock close down nearly 3%. What else is on your radar, Jack? Well, as tech uh, leads led by electric vehicles with surge, it's actually financials and energy which are deep in the red. The energy sector and the S&P down 3.5%. So it looks like traders are really bracing for that open meeting Thursday. Absolutely, Jack. I know you're very keen to talk about that with Darius. But first, we're going to start with that big story. Binance, the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange, really hearing from regulators in the UK today that they can no longer operate, in part because they say that this crypto exchange really can't um, keep up with the anti-money laundering laws that we have here in the UK. Darius, I'm curious to know how this fits in with your bigger macro picture of Bitcoin, which I know you've adjusted just recently. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a blessing to be here. How are you guys doing? Very good and very happy to get your view on Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, look, we, we recently added it to our long ideas within the context of our portfolio construction, primarily because of its low, with respect to the macro regimes that we have forecasted for the second half of the year, i.e. deflation, whereby growth and inflation are slowing at the same time. Uh, it tends to have low volatility and covariance relative to other risk assets that you can have in your portfolio for that. Um, so knock on wood, we're hoping that stock to flow uh, sort of comes through and protects investors from drawdown risk throughout the back half of the year. Whereas obviously, as we're seeing today, there's a lot of uh, risk assets that are poised to, to, to decline much further. And the, go ahead, Jack. Yeah, Darius, I've got a question. As a macro asset, how does Bitcoin trade? Is it an inflation hedge? Is it a central bank balance sheet hedge? Does it trade in, you know, uh, in correlation with traditional stock markets, with the bond market? What do you want to see as a fertile ground for a Bitcoin investment? And why are you seeing it now? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So uh, in terms of what is Bitcoin, I think it's still be, to be determined. Um, I think when you know when we we back test everything that takes across global macro uh, through the lens of what we call our grid framework, uh, Goldilocks reflation, inflation, and deflation, uh, which are really just offshoots of what growth and inflation are doing in rate of change terms. And Bitcoin goes up in three of them, and it goes down in deflation, generally speaking, 
However, when you backtest these various styles of deflation, like quantitative tightening, like fiscal tightening, things that we expect to happen uh, in the back half of the year, Bitcoin tends to outperform other risk assets in those scenarios. But again, these are small uh, in-size backtests because, again, you don't have a, t a tremendous amount of uh, trading history for the asset. And it was interesting for me to watch the whole Binance story play out. It wasn't only here in the UK that they're facing problems. Also, Binance has had to pull out of Ontario and Canada, Japanese mm -hmm. also regulators there also saying that they're really operating without uh, when they shouldn't be in Japan. So I'm just curious, when you take a look at this, uh, Darius, it's interesting for me because on the one hand, you think if a, a big cryptocurrency exchange is being pushed out of a major country like the UK, <laughs> you would think that that would be problematic for the current for the currency. But really what happened on the back of that, it went up most of the day. Now it come off a bit since then, but a lot yeah. of people are saying, no, actually this is good news, that this means that it's going to be more regular and that it's clearer the rules. I'm wondering what your view is on that. Yeah, it's a great question. I don't think it's good news to, to see things get kicked out of major economies in terms of exchanges and people's ability to, to transact in those markets. However, I will say this, Bitcoin's down 46, 47% off its highs. Um, how much of the Binance news, how much of the China ban in terms of uh, its energy consumption, how much of that has been priced in as it relates to where the today or where the asset is today and where the asset could be six months from now in terms of, you know, again, anchoring on the stock to flow framework, which, you know, to be fair, we've only seen a couple of cycles in this framework, um, anchoring on that framework, how much of that has been priced in within the context of the ultimate risk reward that you can have in this asset? I mean, I tend to think, you know, Banning stuff is not a good is not a good leading indicator, but how much of it's been priced in is the real question. Yeah, when I heard analysts saying that, and some people who are always very supportive of Bitcoin, I was thinking about people like me here in the UK, thinking, how are you going to cash out if you've got Bitcoin with yeah. Binance today? I, I see it being very problematic. But I, like I said, I was surprised the first part of the day, at least, really not to see uh, much headwind against it traded against uh, the dollar. You, Jack? Yeah, well, I, Bitcoin, as you say, it's, it's up something like 4%. And MicroStrategy, of course, the first uh, US company that put Bitcoin on its balance sheet is up and eye-popping 13%. So we're definitely seeing a lot of upside volatility for Bitcoin. Regarding the point of some people say it's actually good, Samuel, I feel like there's a crowd of, of people uh, who cluster on Twitter, especially, who are very bullish on Bitcoin. And no matter the news, they'll always say there's a reason yeah. why it's for Bitcoin. So for I example, when, when Elon Musk announced uh, uh, you know that he said he had worries about Bitcoin and green energy. There were people who said that was good for Bitcoin. Um, but but moving on, Darius, I want to ask you, uh, zooming out from Bitcoin, focusing on the world of assets, how are you viewing uh, the current regime that we're in? The past year has been a reflationary dream for whatever asset you hold, whether it's you know oil or or technology. Really, the trick has just been to hold assets and hold risky assets. How are you seeing uh, the future play out in terms of what regime we're going to be in for growth, inflation, and, and how that impacts asset allocation? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question, Jack. And so we've been in this, I'll start from the bottom up macroeconomic perspective, because I, I believe that the market regime is always trying to price in what's happening in rate of change terms in the economy. Um, the economy has been in what we call reflation really since going back to the early spring of last year. That's where growth and inflation are accelerating on a trending basis. Now, by the time we get into August, it's very likely that we'll start to see economic data, leading indicators, you know, high-frequency economic data, all put in cycle peaks in the second and start to trend lower throughout the second half of the year. 
And so that that process of peaking and rolling over from a rate of change perspective uh, is what we call deflation. So that's when growth and inflation are decelerating simultaneously, not outright deflation like we saw in the 90s and 2000s in Japan. Um, so just want to clarify that. And so that process of that economic transition does carry with it a significant amount of asset allocation implications. I mean, for one, you're going to go from being short bonds to being long them. Uh, for one, you're going to be, you know, you're going to go from being further out on the risk spectrum to, to, to you know, much closer, um, keeping it closer to the vest in terms of the betas that you'll have in your portfolio, the covariance that you want to have in your portfolio. Um, you know, in terms, you know, it basically just downshift the beta in your and, and take down the credit risk in your overall asset allocation. But I'm not necessarily sure that that's something we need to do today. When you're talking about those type of headwinds, I mean, deflationary winds is essentially what you're saying. I mean, how do you stack that up? What sectors do you see that playing out in? I know that we've kind of talked about copper and lumber. I mean, are those the types of things when you're talking about, or do you see it across the board? I mean, I look at the labor market and I see so many signs that it may not be transitory just because I see so many people who are able to leverage what they have in the workplace, in, in the mm -hmm. workplace of, of jobs. So I'm curious about the specifics of these deflationary wins because it goes so against the conventional wisdom of the time right now. Yeah, totally. And, I, and actually, when you think about using macro to guide your asset allocation, guide your portfolio construction as we do here at 42 Macro, I think the number one thing you have to think about as an equity investor is, is increasingly become less the sector and more the style factor, because I think what we've learned in the last year is we've seen a lot of dispersion within sectors that is based on style factor trends. And so when you talk about going from a reflation um, uh, sort of market regime to one that is more characterized by deflation, as we as we like to characterize it, you're going to go from being long high beta cyclicals to much more low beta defensives. You want to be long quality. You want to be long. Um, mega cap growth, you know, those types of things really outperform deflation. So when you look at what's happening today in the market, it sort of looks like we're getting a preview of what that might look like um, on a trending basis in the back half of the year. Darius, can you explain what a factor is for the audience? So for example, the energy sector has obviously been a light. It's been on fire this year, mm -hmm. but I'm looking like something like ExxonMobil, it's only been up only, I say. It's only been up 50%, whereas something, you know, a lower quality stock like Marathon Oil, I think is the stock that's up the most in the entire S&P 500, something like 105%. So mm -hmm. talked about that. When you say it's not within the sectors, it's about the factors. What are factors and why is it about the factors? Yeah, that's a great question. So the factors are characteristics of the security or the, the, the stock that have little to do with how the company actually makes money. Um, so the, you know, the, you know, think about style factors, so the size of your dividend, um, if your stock is uh, it's a very high beta or low beta relative to the broader market, um, you know, if your stock is growth or value, those are probably the most obvious um, that I can sort of think of off the top of my head. But there's obviously dozens, if not hundreds, of style factors if you want to slice them and dice them and get really specific. In terms of what's led from a style factor leadership perspective over the last month or so, one thing I track uh, on a routine basis is, is month on month sharp ratios across all the major sectors and style factors in the equity market. And it's pretty clear that you know this, this market regime transition over the last month or so towards Goldilocks, which have a brief period of Goldilocks in there uh, between before the main transition to deflation, it's pretty clear that that's really benefited your sort of obviously growth in, in, in tech-oriented type, type companies, but most importantly, the most shorted aspects of those. 
know, Merrill Lynch publishes these sort of low, high short interest, low short interest indices is about, uh, you know, 12 or 24 of them. I'm blanking on the number. Anyway, but you look at what's compositioning the that sort of upper quintile of sector and style factor leadership over the last month, it's very clearly been everything people left for dead in May. You know, when they, they sold the lows in May, they sold out of all their digital economy exposures. They were worried about a big move higher in interest rates going, you know, from, you know, one five on the 10 year to two on the 10 year. And obviously all that did not come to fruition. And I would argue strongly that the reason it did not come to fruition is because the, the bond market and by extension, the equity market is really looking into the back half of the year at a scenario whereby growth and inflation are persistently decelerating. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I just want to, I just want to drill down a bit and get your take on on the headline that Jack mentioned at the top of the show, BNP Paribas saying that they have a forecast of six percent growth over the next two years. That's an average, obviously higher in two, in 2021 than 2022. But I'm just curious, is that your view? Do you think that sounds about right, and how that fits into the picture that you were just describing for us? Yeah, I mean, I think it's from the perspective of, of an investor. I think it's less about the view being right and more about the path we take to that view being right. Like if we start at 12 and, and end at zero and it's six, that is a very different investment implication than starting at zero and ending at 12. Sure. You know what I mean? That's so I think it's, uh, and, and right now, unfortunately, we're a lot closer to the 12 than we are to the six from a starting point perspective. So to me, that's the big issue. Um, you know, I, I, when I talk about the deflation that we're likely to see both in the U.S. economy and, and really abroad throughout the back half of the year, it's not something that you want to run home and, and write a letter about. It's not It's not anything scary. We're certainly not going back to uh, anything that resembles recession risk. However, I think when you layer on, you know, the fact that, okay, asset valuations, particularly risk asset valuations are pretty ludicrous across most metrics, um, and you layer on the fact that you could have a delayed tightening out of the Federal Reserve, you could have disappointing economic and, and, and earnings data really throughout the back half of the year. And you could also have a pretty meaningful disappointment on the fiscal policy front, which looks like it, it might come to fruition in the next couple of weeks. I think you could just have a scenario where a lot of stuff that's really been driving risk assets higher over the past year are just ending, it's just going away. And so I think you're kind of left with the scenario where people are going to want liquidity. And, and I think that's an issue for markets. Well, I just, I just want to remind the audience that if you have questions for Darius at the end of the show, we're going to be taking them. So start sending them in now. But I know that Jack is chomping at the bit to talk oil with you, Darius. So, yeah. Jack, take it over. Well, Darius, uh, the commodity reflation, the commodity surge uh, that's been at the epicenter of risk assets for this year, it yeah. really has cooled off. And first it was lumber to cool off. Then it was copper. But one commodity that really has held firm has been oil. Um, today, oil uh, had a, it tumbled. Uh, WTI is now below, I believe, $73. The energy sector was down something like 3% in the US. And I think traders are really bracing for the OPEC meeting on Thursday. Thursday. So I have to ask you, what's your view on, on oil? 
Yeah, so it's, I mean, so we look at 42 different market indicators that comprise what we call our global macro risk matrix, which is the tool that we use to now cast the, the market regime probability. What market regime are we in? Are we in Goldilocks, inflation, inflation, or deflation? And so of those 42 market indicators, seven of them are explicitly commodity exposures. Crude oil is the only one that is still bearish, or sorry, that is still bullish, my apologies, still bullish from a volatility adjusted momentum perspective. So that, that, that's a signal in and of itself, okay, the market is clearly transitioned out of being overweight commodities. You know, when you layer on the volatility component, you get a lot of information about flows that you tend to find out in the lag. Um, so this is why we look at the world through that, that dual adjustment. And so it's very clear that the market is, is really betting on a, a, a very positive story, a, a supply-demand dynamic in the crude oil market that is very different than all the other commodities. You mentioned lumber, you mentioned copper, even ag is breaking down. And so to me, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty clean-cut signal that the world is transitioning away from reflation. And also, it's another clean-cut signal to me. I think there's still a pocket of investors out there that fear a bear steepener is still on the horizon. Now, I would argue that's a very low probability event over the next, you know, four to six months. Um, but you know, certainly, it's something I think it could happen in the next, next, uh, you know, over the next twelve to eighteen months. But you know, I, I think when you start to look at the nascency of the breakdowns of these commodity market signals, again, all these signals have broken down in the month of June. Like we're we're at the beginning of the breakdown, not the end of the, you know, the commodity breakdown. So to me, it's all stuff that, um, you know, I think it's it's very important color for investors to be aware of because again. It's increasingly leaving crude oil out there all on its lonesome in terms of where can investors go to specifically and explicitly bet on inflation. Even on a day like today, I mean, I know you're taking the macro view that's even written in the name of your company. Yeah. When you see a day like today, Darius, where you have U.S. airstrikes against Iran in Iraq and Syria, it does do you factor that in at all? Or because you're taking this macro view, you you tend to look over those types of blips, if you consider it a blip. Yeah. So in terms of how I think about investing, I myself will try to control as much of the information that I can. And what I mean by that is if it's, if it's a time series that I can back test, study, and ultimately build a model to forecast, I will do that. However, if it's something that, I, you know, that doesn't have a time series, then I ultimately just let the market decide on that. And so this is why it's so important for me to observe markets through the lens of what we call our volatility-adjusted momentum signal. So, so it's a mouthful for broadcast, we'll just say VAMS for short. And so if the VAMS is telling me that crude oil is still bullish, then everything we just discussed more than likely has a bullish outcome. Now, however, that VAMS can obviously change, and I'll have to reorient my positioning and disposition with respect to that asset class. However, I'm not going to do anything different until it tells me to. Darius, I want to ask you about uh, copper. I actually spoke recently with a copper CEO. He, he runs a copper mine. Mm -hmm. And the interview uh, airs tomorrow. It's with uh, Johnny Kovacevic. And mm -hmm. uh, let, let's actually play a clip, and then I want to ask you a question about copper. So let, let's play the clip. The copper price in the past 30 days went to an all-time high and had a, a pretty dramatic pullback. And people would ask, or the question is, how much of that is due to speculators? Speculators get in the market when there's, when there's a trade to be made. And there has always been, and there continues to be, in my view, an unholy alliance between fabricators and miners. Tomorrow on the essential tier on Real Vision.
Darius, uh, Johnny is a copper bull. He is the CEO of a, of a copper mine. Um, I bet I would be a very a copper bull too. So I want to ask yeah. you, uh, what, what's your outlook about copper within the reflation narrative? Because I've been speaking to so many people who are you know, very bullish on the electrification of the cop of of about of the economy and how much copper and rare earths are needed for that electrification. But at the same time, I'm looking at the Biden stimulus bill and I'm seeing a mere fifteen billion dollars allocated to electric vehicle infrastructure. And I'm thinking, you know, $15 billion, that's like what Tesla moves in a day. In terms of, <laughs> I, I love that a mere $15 billion. <laughs> Samuel, we're talking macro. You got to think macro. Yeah, so, yeah totally. What's 15 so Darius, billion amongst friends? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how are, how are you thinking about copper? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, not, not to make this about the broader macro discussion, but I think you do have to think about copper as a, as a, as a, almost as a leading indicator for what's happening with, with respect to broader commodities. I mean, I, I, you kind of highlighted the, this sort of this, this increasingly debacle around infrastructure spending. I mean, I, I'm surprised the market isn't taking it as poorly as it, as it is, but it's very quickly starting to unravel in terms of the size and scope of what we're likely to see coming out of DC. Now, I think there's, you know, there's still obviously a lot of bipartisan uh, support for infrastructure, but how we pay for it, the size of it, all those things are pretty important details. Um, in terms of getting a you know a, a bill across President Biden's desk, so and I think about copper, like I, clearly the long-term fundamental story is bullish, but as an investor, certainly as someone who doesn't want to suffer a material drawdown on a three-month basis, on a six-month basis, or even a twelve-month basis, you know you you can't just be wedded to some long-term supply-demand narrative. You know I think the long wedded the long-term supply-demand narrative was well priced in at four hundred fifty bucks, you know, an ounce of copper. You know, like they, so it, it's not that it's. It's not going to go straight to the moon. There will be set offsets and pullbacks, and I think the number one driver of those pullbacks, when you are in the secular bull market for any particular asset, is the changing macro regime. You know, the changing macro regime can just change investors' liquidity preference, and they might start to sell copper. Like it has nothing to do with where copper supply and demand is going, but you can actually suffer a meaningful drawdown in the price. And that's to me why you 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 engage with firms like mine, engage with people who do macro, is because we're looking at a different set of observations. Then I think the bottom-up investor, or certainly someone who runs a copper mine, is looking at. Darius, we've got a lot of questions coming in for you. So one last topic I want to hit, and that's United Airlines. They've come a long way, saying that they expect to be profitable by July. Incredible wow. to think where they've come since last year with a lot of my tax dollars, by the way. <laughs> but even with that news, the stock is down 2.5% closing today. So I'm just curious to get your take on this industry and a lot of those um, a lot of those industries that we thought would be doing well at this point with the reopening as Europe continues to reopen and maybe more international flights coming to this side of the pond. What do you make of the news like this where they're announcing also that they're going to be putting in an order for lots of new airplanes and yet the stock reacts the way that it does? Yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's a classic sell the news event. This is telling you that the market is priced in a lot of the good news. I mean, going back to the, the sector and style factor dispersion study that I, that I highlighted earlier, when you look at the lower quintile of what's in that dispersion study, it's all the pure reflation place. It's the materials, the financials, the you know the industrials. You know, it's the value. It's the it's like it's like basically everything you would have wanted to buy hand over fist on the was it Pfizer Day, Moderna Day, whichever one was the first one. You know, I forget which one was the first one, but I believe it was November 9th was the day. Yeah. It's like everything you would have wanted to buy hand over fist with none of the good news you just highlighted, none of the profitability metrics you just highlighted. You want to buy hand over fist. So now they were actually receiving the catalyst that justified making those exposures. 
people are taking profits. I mean, it's a natural market cycle, and this is why it pays to be early, not late. Yeah, that definitely makes me think of Live Nation Entertainment, another yeah. stock heavily oriented towards the reopening. Uh, yeah. Now, so many people, concerts are getting back uh, cl- close to full force. You know, there are tens of thousands of people not wearing masks. Uh, business is booming for Live Nation Entertainment. Yet the stock is basically where it was at in February, because of course that was already priced in. Yeah, if I can make one quick final comment before we turn it over to questions, this is kind of what the microcosm of what I see, which is why inflation plays have really struggled so much of late. Pure inflation plays is what I mean. You think about an economy that is decelerating from an unsustainably high growth rate, but not necessarily decelerating at a pace that like is would scare you into recession, more importantly, scare analysts and macro strategists into taking down their numbers. I think you could set up for uh, like a sustainable period of persistent economic and earnings disappointments, particularly for the pure reopening plays. It's never going to be good enough because of that, that, that rate of change dynamic that I just highlighted. So I think that's what you're seeing in a lot of these stocks, and, and I would expect it to continue. Well, I just want to get to the first question. Jack and I are both going to bounce them off you. I'll start. For Darius, what's the heaviest weighted indicator in his model for the transition to a deflationary environment? The heaviest weighted indicator is always going to be our global macro risk matrix. Um, whatever that thing is spitting out in terms of the market regime probabilities is how we orient ourselves at 42 macro. I am not smart enough to figure this out on my own. I need to ask 42 different macro indicators to tell me what's, what, what's, the, what's the move. And so, in terms of, you know, I sound extremely bearish, and, it, and I certainly expect to see a 10 to 15 to even potentially 20% drawdown at some point in the late mid to late summer between that then and the the early fall I, you know in, the, in term, you know when that transition to deflation becomes obvious the tightening it will become obvious from a federal reserve perspective so i think a lot of stuff is on the tape on the come rather um, from a bearish perspective but i'm not quite there yet and so in terms of discussing all the indicators in that 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 model that are telling me not to put that on today equity ball broke back down so a lot of stuff happened in the last couple of weeks that made it very precarious. It made the system very vulnerable to a phase transition. And then in the last couple of days, we started we started to see some bullish indicators um, like equity ball complex breaking down. Mexican peso went from went from bearish to neutral again. You know, little stuff like that. It's not one thing you want to write a note about, but it's certainly you're seeing enough um, in terms of defense of reflation and or Goldilocks from a market regime probability perspective that tells me that ultimate drawdown is really not something we have to worry about today, but certainly will in the next month or two. Darius, I want to ask you a question that's just I'm curious about uh, is that where do you see Fang, uh, you know, Facebook, Alphabet, uh, um, you know, Apple, Netflix, where do you see those companies? How do you see those pump- companies performing during this transitionary period? They've traded pretty flat over the year, I think, with the exception of Facebook. Yet today, uh, Facebook is actually a trillion dollar company by equity market cap for the first time. Do you think mm. that we could have a breakout in those, in those Fangs um, or no? I think we will have a breakout in those names. Um, so if you think about the, the let's play the let's let's outline a, a, the next couple of months for your for your viewers and you know obviously I'm going to get fact checked on this and I want to be held to account on this. I certainly think you could have a you know brief period of Goldilocks price action. Well, go, what will Goldilocks price action do? It's going to over it's going to shift funds out of reflation place and back into digital economy names, particularly the mega cap high quality digital economy names that. You know, for lack of a better, you know, phrase, like investors basically had to sell that to make room in their portfolios for reflation praise. Because if you go back to last August, 
at the highs of you know early September of last year, investors were max overweight digital economy to a level that we have never seen before. You know, I'm just looking at the um, you know the the S and P sector uh, allocations on a market cap basis. We had never seen that before, aside from the obviously the tech bubble, which obviously was a very unsustainable event. Um, so you know they had to make room for the reflation plays. Now I think the market is saying, based on the bond yield signals, based on the signals that we're getting from you know, the fixed income market, that hey, I think this 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 fear of digital economy, of quality, of safety, of those kind of names is is is, is mispriced. I just want to get to another viewer question. Your view on the Delta variant or the next Delta variant, I think it's the biggest risk not talked about enough. That says TomTom. Of course, here in the UK, the Delta variant is the dominant variant. And we're starting to see, I mean, we'd seen cases going up, but I was saying with so many of us having one, if not both vaccines here, it, we're not, we weren't seeing hospitalization going up until this week. Now, this week, in, in the past seven days, I should say, we're starting to see hospitalization go up here, though at relatively low periods compared to uh, low numbers compared to last year. So are you keeping an eye on the Delta variant and, and how does it factor into your thinking, Darius? Yeah, it's, certainly it's worth keeping an eye on. I will say this, the, the likelihood that COVID-19 in and of itself, i.e. the transmission, the hospitalizations, and the deaths, uh, unfortunate deaths, the likelihood that that's something like that can surprise markets in a really nasty way is much lower now, right? Like, like, we, we, like it's all about the surprise. Markets hate uncertainty. They hate dealing with things that they can't, people like me can't put in a time series in Excel or Python and, and figure out. And that, to me, is what we saw this, this winter and spring of last year. Part of the reason, in my opinion, that you know the, the 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 wave that we saw throughout the fall and the winter of last year, particularly here in the U.S., did not have a meaningfully negative impact on asset markets. It's because a we the risk was well understood, it was well telegraphed, and at the end of the day, we were in a positive macro regime. It never really took us out of it. And so, I guess to, to answer your question on the Delta variant, will this catalyze a a material enough change in the economy? to push us into a deleterious macro regime sooner than I would already expect? Because again, we think that's coming in August. We only have one month to figure that out. So I guess to answer your question, maybe it's a big deal, but I don't suspect it is given everything I know today. That's a really good point that you have about telegraphing, that even if it were to get worse, the fact that we have so many testing regimes in place, the yeah. fact that we have vaccination programs in place, totally. if they need to give a third dose here in the UK, they were just saying today, we don't see a need to give a third dose. Yeah. At this point, we think it would be safer to give other countries that haven't even had the first dose. Totally. So given that we have all of these regimes in place to be able to care for it. It's a really important point that you're ma making. Jack, yeah. other viewer questions you want to get to? Yeah, I'll, I'll just say, it's, Darius, it sounds like um, now COVID is the devil that the markets know, but in yeah. March, the devil that they don't know. They um, didn't know. It's a big deal. Did, yeah, they did know. Yeah. So Jory has a question. Darius, given that you think that growth and inflation will peak, do you think that the risk of rising real rates is low? And due to the correlation, uh, the high correlation with real interest rates and gold, what's your view on gold? Yeah, so we're, we're bullish gold. It's part of our. It's in our portfolio construction currently. Um, so we recently added that after taking it out. So we definitely believe. So clearly, by that indication, we don't believe real interest rates are going up much materially from here um, throughout the lifetime of this what we consider to be a market cycle. Um, so that I mean, I mean that sort of answers the question. I think there is a ultimate risk if you could you could see a real material pullback in commodities. That doesn't necessarily impact the broader, you know, sort of um, asset market landscape. 
and that would drag down break-evens, and you could actually see a, like a really awkward rise in real interest rates relative to where nominals are priced in, because obviously we haven't seen a tremendous amount of volatility there. So there is a risk there. Um, I don't think that's a high probability risk. I think the more likely probability is that we see both nominal and real interest rates drift lower over the next you know, three to six months. I just want to finish with one more question going back to oil, since I know Jack is so keen on it. Do you expect crude oil and energy stocks to remain in bullish, in bullish regime through the Goldilocks period, Darius? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's very unlikely you have a Goldilocks period where something like energy or crude, so these are big exposures that are, that are really breaking down. Like they might correct, particularly in around days where you're worried about Delta variant or you know, on certainly OPEC supply <laughs> increase. Is a meaningful enough uh, driver to get those things lower on a day like today, but uh, you know, it's very unlikely you see a broadening, broadening breakdown of you know risk asset exposures in Goldilocks. Goldilocks is the most positive setup for risk assets, so it's very unlikely to see that. However, I would just assume all you know. I don't want to talk about both sides of my mouth, but if we do see those things. I think that just amplifies the probability that Goldilocks is not going to be something that is investable. It could be a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, you know, for my friends over in London. It, it, it just it won't be something to count on to make money with, you know, for an extended multi-month period of time, which means, guess what? The probability that you have to put on the deflation portfolio, i.e. the risk off portfolio, it happens much sooner. So keep our eye. I mean, obviously, we keep our eye on everything every morning. <laughs> Of course. Well, we've been looking forward to talking to you, and I know the audience Thank has too, Darius. Darius Dale, founder and CEO of 42 Macro. Thank you very much for joining us. Jack, I know you were keen to ask him all those questions, especially those deflationary wins that Darius sees, and of course, about oil. So, Jack, thanks so much for joining us. We'll be checking out your interview on realvision.com that you previewed for us, and we'll see you again tomorrow here on The Daily Briefing. Have a good one, guys. Thanks, Samuel. Thank you. Uh...